welcome to the 11th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, um, the podcast on history, politics, women, feminism and everything else. Um, I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And today we're going to be talking about trade unions. Yes. How is that relevant? Uh, so I guess I am historically interested in trade unions because part of my research focuses on the history of the Labour Party. Yeah. You can't really be interested in the history of the Labour Party without having at least a passing interest in the history of trade unions. Mm. Um, women and trade unions intersect in interesting ways and introducing gender to the history of trade unions and unionism generally does interesting things to the story, I think. It changes the story a bit. Um, how about you? How does it fit into your... It fits into my um, interest in, in that same way as well. I think it's been a very important politicising tool for many women mm-hmm. in both... So my thesis was on Sweden and South Africa. And a lot of women came to politics through working in various industries, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's canning factories or manufacturing, um, or even harder work than that. Um, and then it's it becomes this added venue for having your voices heard Mm -hmm. but also I think importantly a lot of the trade unions that um, support women's active workplace politics are often women-only spaces Mm -hmm. in that early era yeah and I think that also says important things about uh, women's roles in politics women's roles in work life and Mm -hmm. also how we remember them because when you look at the kind of general labour history, and I'm saying labour now with the lowercase l, so mm-hmm. people working, um, it's more, it's very male-dominated. Yes, absolutely. So people talk about the big um, metal workers' union in Sweden, for example, and kind mm-hmm. of forget that the biggest union is the one that represents women in care, mm. um, giving p- professions. This is actually really... Um, I saw something yesterday, I think, about... Um, about how the working class has changed in America and and this it made me think about trade unions about the sort of our image of what trade unions look like compared to what they really are and was that a tweet from Cynthia Nixon right so it was it was a tweet from <laughs> Cynthia Nixon so um for people who have not been I can't I, I really feel like anyone who listens to this podcast would be all over this news story because it feels like, <laughs> I feel like it has a lot of things that we're interested in but so Cynthia Nixon who is um an actor and activist um, who kind of is primarily known in Britain, I think, for her role in Sex and the City. She played Miranda. Um, the hardworking lawyer. The hardworking lawyer. Who sort of, of accidentally becomes a mother yes, halfway the through. Very kind of um, often the kind of voice of reason on the show, I think. Um, I, I like Miranda. I think she's one of the better characters uh, in a very guilty pleasure television program that I clearly own the DVD box set of. Um, but so Cynthia Nixon is running to be governor of New York and um, is obviously is well not obviously is running as a Democrat and is um, has positioned herself on the left. And in a, you know in America this has drawn a lot of interest because uh, Cynthia is a, a woman who is in a lesbian relationship. She's bisexual. Um, she has. Um, actually interestingly has not interestingly terribly was described as being a single woman um, oh really yeah there was a news story like what do, what would Cynthia Nixon's victory mean for single women and she's actually married she's been married to a woman for some time but, yeah um but the point of this story is that she um 
has very early in her campaign addressed the idea that the working class in America looks different to the kind of traditional, in inverted commas, image of what working class looked like. Mm. And that she's done this, commentators have said, and I think I agree, more effectively than, for example, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And certainly, you know, Trump ran part of his campaign on the idea that kind of traditional manual labour jobs would be returned to the American heartlands. These kind of American blue-collar car factory jobs would Mm. go back to these workforces because that's what the working class And for Trump, the working class has always been male and white. Male and white, yeah. And Cynthia Nixon, um, kind of over the weekend, was talking about a working class as comprising social workers and care workers and, you know, lots of traditionally feminised, often casualised jobs... Or, or, you know, things like social work, which have actually have quite a high degree of training, but are very low paid yeah. and low status. And so talking about working class votes as meaning not necessarily white men doing kind of manual labour, but women and people of colour, and maybe particularly women of colour, mm. doing um, kind of low paid, low status jobs yeah looking after other people yeah exactly doing work which is often invisible and exp- and and would traditionally have been done by women for free mm. um which has now become you know most of kind of a, a working working class work and one of the challenges for trade unions going forwards in britain and in america and across the world is is about reaching those people yeah. So like, talking about things like Uber drivers, how how do you how do you approach unionization with Uber drivers? Um in universities one of the big things has been cleaners. Mm. But cleaners who are employed by third party um by third party agencies. Yeah. Who um you know, so people's capacity both to strike and to demonstrate against their employers is very limited if you're being if you're kind of working somewhere that does not actually employ you yeah. because your bosses, you know, how do you, how do you pick at your bosses if your bosses are in some sort of faceless office that you actually never go to and your workplace is not actually the, the kind of people who make decisions about your pay or your conditions. Yeah. Um, and so there's been lots of really good work at a grassroots level among, for example, the cleaners at London School of Economics yeah. who unionised and who worked together to get better paying conditions. They got taken in-house, yes. having been outsourced. Which was one of their big demands. But th- but that's going to be that's a real challenge for trade unions today because casualised labour and zero-hours contracts make it very hard for what was traditional union activism to take yeah. hold. We're all meant to become agency workers, or we, yeah. we are kind of in that economy at the moment where people are agency yeah absolutely. staff regardless of whether it's the person delivering food on a bike or driving you across london yeah. or cleaning the school that or your in, kids might go to or in universities teaching assistants yeah um one of the problems at for example i think uh, the university of warwick for example in the recent um strike has been that teaching assistants are not always implied di- employed directly by universities but are employed by a kind of sort of semi-independent agency organisation and that limits your ability to... I know that Warwick was setting up a teaching agency to employ their teaching assistants and that limits your ability to take industrial action. Mm. Um, You know, and it it makes the story about unionisation very different. You know, Ellen Wilkinson started her political career by unionising shop girls. Yeah. That was work that she did um, and she was able to unionise shop girls because although, you know, women working, young women working in department stores and things don't necessarily, in on first instance, look like 
a cohesive labour force that could be unionised. Actually, they you know they share a place of employment. They have similar conditions. They have similar concerns. Um, they had they did kind of shift pattern patterns that meant she could organise meetings that they could all attend. Mm. She could talk to them about shared um, kind of anxieties and values and demands and things like that. And it was you know comparatively simple to get them into a trade union. Yeah, but it's much harder to do that with outsourced agency casualised workforces yeah um, which increasingly you know if you're working in a shop you probably are on zero hours contract now and it would be very difficult to bring people together to get yeah people have a lot to lose sort of on a personal individual Mm -hmm. level from um raising their voices Mm -hmm. but the thing about unions is that you don't have to do it on your own there was a we were talking so obviously the thing that we haven't mentioned yet the other reason why this is very contemporary to both Emma and myself is that um, uh, USU, the Union and Colleges Union, has been on strike in some universities, most post nineteen two universities. Pre nineteen ninety two. Pre nineteen ninety two. I keep saying post nineteen two. Most pre ninety two <laughs> universities, with the exception of Birmingham and LSE, um, have been on strike. We've had fourteen days of strike action. We may have more strike action in the future over a pensions issue. Mm. So I think. A lot of academics, including those who don't work on anything to do with labour or labour history or women, mm. um, have been thinking a lot about unions. And um, have you ever been on strike before? Oh, f- several times with UC. Okay, UC strike periodically about yeah. different issues, and I have I the, my very first proper in inverted commas um, academic job, which was a teaching fellowship at the University of York. Uh, I was on strike on my very first payday. Um, <laughs> the 31st of October was a strike day. And I remember being very uncertain. What was that, what? 2014? 2015. Okay. No, hang on, 2013. 2013, 2013. I was going to say. It was before I was employed by university, yeah. so I wasn't involved 31st in that. 31st of October 2013, which I think I think might have been about the 1.1% pay rise. Okay. We often offered these very small pay rises, and um, I think it was about that. And I was very uncertain as to... Not as to whether I would go on strike, but as to what the response of the university would be or how that would work. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is very difficult, and particularly, you know, for people who maybe don't have personal or political or family history yeah. of of strikes or of labour action, I think it is very intimidating. I have a lot of family history of strikes. <laughs> <laughs> and a very national history of strikes as yeah. well. I mean, unionisation in Sweden when I grew up you know, most people were members of a union. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ever have considered working in Sweden without becoming a member of a union. Mm-hmm. I worked as a waitress and wasn't a member of the union, but that was only because I was leaving the country within, like, two months or something. But, like, the idea that waitress... I, mean, I don't... I'm sure that... Well, no, they definitely asked, like, service staff in unions in Britain, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what union... I was a waitress for a long time. Yeah. And I didn't, as a waitress and barmaid, had no sense that I would be in a union. That wasn't something that was... Yeah, no, I definitely had a sense of which union was my union and also that they're very good at representing you in case you ever need anything. And in mm-hmm. those sort of service mm-hmm. jobs, you quite often need yeah. the extra voice of support. I had yeah. a good employer, but um, there are other things that can happen, like workplace injuries and stuff, where mm. the union steps in in Sweden. I think you've said before on this podcast as well that in Sweden, uh, pay negotiations are done yeah. sta- as standard through unions, right? As that standard through unions. Happens. Even for my mum, who at one point um, worked for the city council, but she was the only member of her particular union because she's originally a teacher, so she mm-hmm. was a member of the teachers' union. 
and she had one person negotiating for her while other members of staff had their negotiator um yeah so it, it comes down to like even if it's just the one person who's, who needs a ne- negotiation the union comes in and does it um and both of my parents have been in that have been uh, union reps as well mm-hmm. at various points in their careers and both have been on strikes I remember very clearly in the early 90s my mum was on strike along with other teachers most teachers in Sweden I think at mm-hmm. the point or at least teachers in southern Sweden and my dad's my dad used to work for a bank and there was a lockout mm. I think there was a strike followed by a lockout, yeah. but I can't remember correctly. So that was a very, the early 90s was a very uh, awareness building mm. moment in little Emma's consciousness, I think. And the the fact that your employer isn't, it doesn't mean that your employer isn't on your side, but it, your employer is interested in the best business and mm-hmm. the best um, financial circumstances that it can be. And then that will mm-hmm. never be to pay its staff More than it enough. Has to. Yeah. My so my memories of strikes are in the so I was born in the mid eighties so I have a kind of cultural memory of the minor strikes mm. but I don't remember you know they happened as I was born or before I was born um, there were kind of rounds of minor strikes so some of the listeners to the podcast will have seen um, films like Pride most recently um, Billy Elliot uh, Billy Elliot. Um, um, the one with Pete Postlethwaite about the Brastoff. Oh yes, which is a really good actually. Brastoff is it's probably slightly less well known than Billy Elliot or less yeah. current than um, Pride, but a really good representation of a kind of community's response to a strike. It's about a colliery band, mm. um, which which actually weirdly, even though I grew up in South Lincolnshire, colliery bands were very um, part of my childhood because oh, really? the Grimethorpe Colliery Band, um, which was quite local. And because I was a musician as a child, I was in an orchestra, I had a lot of experience with the colliery band as a specific form of kind of... What instrument did you play? Uh, I played the violin. Oh. Um, so, not a colliery band instrument. No. <laughs> in, in the context of those kind of musical events. Um, it's, a, it's a good film. But my, I have a kind of, you know, kind of cultural memory of that. I, have a, I grew up in a very left-wing household. I have a cultural kind of memory of Thatcher's kind of intransigence with the strikes and and... I think that's a very um that has kind of spread across the world as well the kind of British Mm. memory and and experiences around the 1980s yeah yeah the minor strikes it's one of the things definitely that makes me feel like it is funny but the area I grew up in Britain is um it's in the Midlands it's in the east east of England and near the Fens which I think have their own cultural identity but when I came down to London for university, I was told that it was in the north. Um, cause, because people in the south of England have really funny ideas about where the north starts and possibly Islington. But I, the one thing actually that does make me feel more like where I grew up is more northern is that I feel like it's relationship to things like those strikes. Yeah. It feels more... Because because also Nottingham saw, saw um, minor strikes and mm. that, that kind of... It, there is a kind of north-southness there in that the 80s for some people in Britain meant yuppies and mobile phones and the Big Bang and... Canary Wharf and Docklands, yeah. But for the whole north of England, it meant deindustrialisation and the devastation of these working communities. Yeah. And Lincolnshire, you know, Grimsby saw that with the fishing industry, rather than with we don't really have coal mines in Lincolnshire, we don't have coal. But um, that that kind of relationship. Mm. The other cultural memory I have very much of strikes is that when I was a child at school in the nineteen nineties, teachers struck a lot. 
Oh, really? I, yeah, there, were, there was a wave of teaching strikes um, when I was a child. And to the extent that I remember, for example, the children's book, I think Mrs. Doubtfire, um, <laughs> which, which became a film with, um, and obviously is transplanted to America in the film with Rob, uh, Robin Williams. In the book version of that, which is British, I'm sure it's Mrs. Doubtfire, where part of the plot revolves around the fact that the school is closed because there is a teacher strike. Oh, really? The children have an unexpected day off because there's a teacher strike. So it's sort of... In the early 90s, it was enough part of my of your educational experience that it would be just written into kids' literature. Oh, great. Of course, the school would be closed, you know, as a teacher strike. Who was the Minister of Education then? Gillian Shepherd? Mm, yeah, because it would have been... It's post-Baker... Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe. So like ninety, like major. Yeah, yeah, under major. Yeah, Sir Julian Shepherd. Possibly, um, at least. Possibly relinquishing responsibility for that because I was only seven. So <laughs> my understanding of who was specifically in charge of the teacher strikes is less. less yeah, simple. I remember very clearly um, who um, the Swedish teachers were striking against because there were very funny puns on there, mm-hmm. but they will make absolutely no sense in translation. <laughs> so there's no there's no point in even mentioning it. So we've talked um, a little bit already then about how trade unions, trade unions and gender yeah. as a particular issue and how um, women's work and women's um, kind of traditionally feminised work like caring might have different relationships to unionism and unionisation. But it's funny, I think we've talked a little bit before about how kind of labour history often tells a particular story about gender. Yeah. Um, and introducing stories about women into labour history problematises it that's a word that academics like a lot but problematises it in important ways because actually trade unions historically have not necessarily been I don't I mean it'd be interesting to hear what it's like in Sweden but in Britain they have not necessarily been particularly sympathetic to the concerns of women no um and and also people of colour that that, that's the kind of other side of this story that unions in some ways are incredibly progressive forces and very important democratic forces but also historically, actually, the kind of story of female unionisation is often initially a process of having to overcome resistance. Yeah. And it's also quite often an add-on. Mm-hmm. It's like they are deemed to be slightly different. There's some really good work done by a Swedish academic, a historian called Sylvgen Neunsinger, mm-hmm. um, who has looked at... She's a she's a economic historian and she's looked at the money traces basically into the early Swedish trade union movement mm-hmm. and its relationship with the the social democratic parties, uh, women's organisation and stuff and it's it shows part of what it shows is that there is a real constraint mm-hmm. due to the fact that the money predominantly comes from the male dominated organisations. Mm. So they have to, even though they organise separately within the trade union movement or the labour movement, as mm-hmm. it is in Sweden, they have to um, rely on cash coming mm. from the bigger organisation, which is very reluctant to involve women at all. The Swedish um, Social Democratic Party, which is like the the leader of Swedish politics in the 20th century, and the reason Sweden has is well-known, well-established welfare state, mm-hmm. which is, you know, increasingly under threat. But it was uh, a, a remarkable achievement in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really let women in very easily. Mm-hmm. They, For a very long time, the Social Democratic Party 
kind of thought of the women as the wives of, mm-hmm. of the members, um, even though they were members in their own rights. Mm-hmm. They, they're not listed with their own occupations in membership books. They're mm. listed as wives if they are married. Obviously, a lot of women could still be working, and a lot of women did work regardless of whether they were married or not. Mm-hmm. But the Swedish labour movement's general idea was that they were striving towards a housewife model. Mm. So they wanted full employment and well-paid jobs for working-class men, mm-hmm. but they wanted women to be at home, yeah. kind of the respectable working-class yeah. scenario, I suppose, is what they were after. Yeah. And I think that kind of worked maybe for a little bit, the generation that were born maybe around the turn of the last century mm-hmm. or... You know, up until maybe the First World War, they were quite maybe perhaps content with that. The work that those women had to do when they were in their working lives was difficult, hard and, mm-hmm. you know, damaging yeah. to them. And of there course... wasn't any services around childcare. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they felt there was this big schism in the, in the Social Democratic Women's Organisation in the 1950s because of this kind of housewife model mm-hmm. and younger women feeling that it was completely outdated mm-hmm. and made made the organisation completely irrelevant. And this is early, I mean, in the same late 19th century in Britain, a lot of, there's a lot of pressure from kind of labour organisations to, for example, so for example around mining, to um, limit the work that women and children can do in the mines, and women are lumped in with children in in this legislation. Mm. And again, a lot of the kind of labour movement stuff is very paternalistic, and it's about protecting women from doing difficult, dangerous work. Yeah. But also, as you say, you know, in Britain, this is partly to do with the separate spheres ideology of women being in the home. But it's also because, you know, if you're a working class family who has children, it does represent to many people a, a type of progress to have one wage that is sufficient for your family to live on so yeah. that your wife can raise your children. Yeah. Um, it does, you know, if you can guarantee a decent life for your family on a single wage, that represents something to aspire to, not just yeah. because of respectability, but also because of what that might mean for your kind of family happiness. Yeah. And I suppose the... And I think that's a generation of women's work, which has been completely obscured in, in labour history up mm-hmm. until maybe the last 10 years, even, mm-hmm. if perhaps just the last five years, because domestic work hasn't been counted as work yes exactly in that way i think there's a very kind of old-fashioned marxist idea that work is something you sell your labor to Mm -hmm. someone who pays you for it and domestic work when you're doing it in your own home yeah you're not going to be remunerated and of course you know the ultimate problem with that model of course is that it because of the the rigidity of the gender roles and it has to be the man who does it goes out to do the work it has to be the woman who stays at home Mm. but you know actually the kind of the notional idea that a family should be able to live on a single whole wage, which might mean two parents working part-time or something, yeah. actually for many people today is appealing, right? It's not yeah. necessarily it's not necessarily progress for both people to have to work full-time in order to support a family. No. But what you have in the labour movement is anxiety then about women entering the workforce and taking these jobs away from men. And also lowering wages. And lowering wages. So for a long time, women were, it was legal to pay women less. Yes. A absolutely. lot less for the same work. I mean, in Britain, this really comes to a head uh, in the First World War because obviously men exit the labour market in order to go and fight overseas. Um, and so women, initially unmarried young women and then later married women, are brought into the workforce. And normally on lower wages to men um, and on worse conditions than men. And the anxiety in Britain around the First World War is very much, you know, what happens when these men come back Mm. from the war? 
And the general assumption is that women will leave, exit the labour force. And at the First World War, this generally does happen. Women yeah. tend to exit the labour force, men come back into jobs. And and I find that quite interesting, because not all the women who leave the labour force are going to be connected to one of the men who come back yes, in. Yes, exactly. This is, and also, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of women who are left out of work yeah. with no other sort of male support <laughs> yeah, but the you know the con- their contracts had been based on collective agreements between trade unions and, em- and employers, which had decreed that women would only be employed for the period of the war or would be employed on lower wages. Mm. And so the lower wages issue is 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 a sticking point for the unions because they're worried that they'll be used to undercut men. But generally, this doesn't happen. And there's a big campaign um, to get married women in particular out. A kind of popular campaign that married women should be ashamed if they're working because they're taking mm. jobs away from men who need to support their families. There's, Helen Glue has done a lot of work yeah, on, the, on the marriage bar. Is that what it's called even? Yeah, but this isn't necessarily the marriage bar. No, formally. I know. But the, the yes, interesting yeah, thing yeah. is that it continues for such a long oh, time yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, it stems from a, from an earlier moment when yeah. women are meant to be leaving voluntarily. But mm-hmm. then it, it's introduced in certain professions that if, you're, if you do get married while you have a job, you have to, you have to go. leave. There's some there's some union action among women in the First World War as well. So the women workers on London buses and trams go on strike in 1918 because they want an increase. They want the war bonus that men have been given. And they strike and they win, but they do it without any support from the union. They mm. have to do it entirely on their own. Um, and there's also a strike in Scotland because women are working on the printing presses for the Edinburgh Typographical Society and they refuse to print the voter rolls unless they're given a pay rise, oh. which obviously has a nice time-sensitive... Yeah. It's a good example of union organising. They pick something that is very important, you know, has a, has a critical time-sensitive moment and the bosses are forced to give them a pay rise and pay them men's rates. But it's really specific in, in the documentation that it only relates to this specific job. Okay. So they get a pay rise for printing the voter rolls, but it doesn't have any kind of longer term effects. Oh, okay. Um, and in the First World War in um, Scotland, in like Red Clydeside and stuff, the women go on things like rent strikes as yeah. well, which is a different type of collective action. Yeah. Um, they go on rent strikes against landlords, uh, both to improve housing conditions, but also to protest against rent rises. So I think it's really interesting because when you look at when you look at how women protest, and we're going to do mm-hmm. other episodes on women, women and activism, but when you look at the way women protest, it's quite often the kind of wildcat strike, mm-hmm. unorganized thing. I mean, the, so the Russian Revolution in March 1917 is sparked mostly by women mm-hmm. um, who demand bread, which is a is a good demand to have, but it's it's not as organized as what would come later. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, I think, is it E.P. Thompson who has written that in the 18th century a lot of the food riots mm. were sparked by women? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they can seem very spontaneous, but I would guess that it isn't yeah. quite so. It mm-hmm. seems spontaneous to people who don't listen to what women are doing when yes. they're in groups of women. Yeah, I think that's really key because, again, there's moments in um, kind of anti colonial agitation, moments of kind of food riots among women that, again, often are characterised as being spontaneous mm. protests and I don't think I don't think they are I don't think these protests do happen spontaneously I mean they're certainly not spontaneous in the sense of being um not being rooted in material conditions mm. they come out of something very specific a very specific shortage or exploitation or oppression but also I think you're right I think if you listened 
if someone had been sitting listening to these women as they talk, they wouldn't think they were spontaneous at all. They'd yeah. know that, of course, they're going to. And it's quite fascinating how quickly a woman's organisation is deemed to be non-political mm-hmm. and kind of left to its own devices. I said in a previous episode about yeah. how the um, apartheid campaign in South Africa was brought forward by women who were deemed unimportant in the eyes of the very patriarchal apartheid mm-hmm. system. Um, and it, it's basically the reason the ANC survived within South Africa was because mm-hmm. women could organise away from the kind of overtly political mm-hmm. spaces. So you have church groups or you have, you know, just a knitting club. What mm-hmm. goes on when women are left to their own devices? There's also kind of, in British Labour history, in terms of gendering the story, there's one moment in particular which always comes up, and partly because it's, it's been made into a film, which is the 1968 um, Ford Dagenham strike. Oh, yeah. And I think that's been an interesting moment historically because, I mean, first of all, it's a successful strike led by women that leads not only to any, a better condition for them, but also a change in legislation. Mm. Um, so they, women go on strike. They are sewing machinists who sew the car seat covers at the Ford, Ford car factory in Dagenham. And they go on strike because their jobs have been regraded as unskilled. Mm. And because their jobs have been um, asserted as unskilled, this means that they have, they're being paid about 13% less than male assembly workers whose jobs are graded as skilled. So the factory's trying to pretend that this isn't a gendered division. It's simply to do with the work that they're doing. Um, and the women go on strike. Um, and the trade union's very reluctant to support them initially because they, again, think that women demanding better pay for their work is a sort of devaluation of male work or is going to lead to kind of cuts in, in, in male, uh, male salaries. But eventually the women get an increase in pay and it still only takes their pay to 92%. It's interesting this is always seen as a victory. And they do win something, but actually they still end up with an 8, 8% lower. So they actually only win a 5% increase. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of it. This was followed by strikes over the rest of the country, um, and then there's the 1970 Equal Pay Act, which comes into force in 1975, which says that um, men and women's jobs have to be even sort of equivalent jobs should be graded the same. Mm. It it kind of this strike in particular, the Ford Dagenham strike, kind of it, it gets a lot of media attention because both of the kind of imagery around the strike the image of these women striking. Mm. Dagenham in Essex has a kind of particular a sort of reputation as being this sort of centre of working class, a, work, a big working class community, and the women kind of are part of that community, and the visuals of the strike are very, very I was going to say very striking, but very, <laughs> but also Barbara Castle's involvement. So Barbara Castle kind of adopts this as being an important moment in the equal pay legislation. Yeah, so people who haven't listened to our earlier episodes, Barbara Castle is the Labour MP, uh, who we talk about a lot. We talk about her all the time. <laughs> uh, she comes up in both my work and Emma's work, and um, she, you know, she's done did, had a very varied career, um, and is of course famous within the Labour movement for writing um, a policy called "In Place of Strife," which aimed to limit the power of trade unions in key ways, um, and which led her to being kind of falling from being the darling of the left of the Labour Party to being seen as this a kind of traitor and scab, mm. um, which I would argue is quite unfair, particularly given the, you know, the way in which she ended up being 
both having to write this document and then also having it leaked to the media before it was ready. So it was very mm. difficult for her to actually kind of respond to any of these accusations. But anyway, <laughs> Castle's kind of association with the Maiden Dagenham strike is, is kind of, again, very visually appealing to newspapers who see all of these women, for example, having meetings and sitting down. They have a tea meeting where they all sit down together and things. But mm. Castle intervenes in the strike to get their employers to raise the money. Yeah. And the reason I kind of... so And it's in a film called Maiden Dagenham, which is also a musical... Um, and it's this kind of critical moment in women's history. I think the reason it's interesting in particular is because it comes before a much less well-known strike, um, which says something about not just the place of gender in British Labour Union, but the place of race. Mm. Um, because it's about five years before, no, eight, eight years before the Grunick dispute, um, which is a strike at a film processing plant in Grunick, led Grun, Grunick, led by a woman called Jaya Desai, and it's women who are mostly South Asian origin, who themselves walk out from their jobs in 1976, both over pay, but also more prim- primarily over conditions. The work they're doing in this film processing plant is is very poor conditions, but also they're putting up with quite a lot of unpleasant hostility and racism from bosses and the men that they're working with Mm. and they're on strike for two years and then eventually are forced to call off the strike with no with no concessions partly because the tuc and apex which was their union notionally were just refused to support their cause yeah so they couldn't win support either from their own union or from the trade unions congress and they were forced to go back to work and they didn't they didn't kind of win any victory and they were also very badly treated in the press. I mean, the, yeah. the the thing that happens there, which has sort of made headlines, that it might be the thing that people remember from that time, is that Shirley Williams, who was then a, a, mm-hmm. a um, social democrat, even yeah, wasn't she? SDP. Yeah, yeah. Think no, no. This is too early. She's still in the Labour Party. She's still in the Labour Party. But Apex is her union, Mm -hmm. the union that has nominated her for Parliament. Yeah. So she goes and visits, and then a few days later, there's some sort of riot or some some something happens, some violence, Mm -hmm. and the papers claim that Shirley Williams has incited the violence. So they they again focus away from the women who are actually taking action. Yeah, absolutely. They're kind of, it's, you know, they're women who are, they're mostly migrant women workers. They're mostly Asian women who've come from East Africa, which again, you know, puts a particular context because it's those migrations, those Asian migrations from East Africa, which had really ramped up a lot of anti-immigration feeling in Britain, in the media and in politics. So they're, they're kind of women in an immigrant group, which is already being demonised in the press, Mm. who then have the kind of temerity to protest at poor poor working conditions and they're just not they're not um their conditions aren't their requests aren't taken seriously they're not seen as you know they're not seen as worthy of solidarity or support Mm. you know and in 1968 the the ford factory the ford factory women had also faced hostility from their male union and they had also faced hostility particularly from the men that they're working for in, in the factory who you know saw their gains as a zero sum game if the women won pay higher pay the men would have lower pay but the the Grunick dispute really shows yeah, how race comes into this as mm. well. Um, and I know that there is also, you know, evidence to the contrary. I know Jack Saunders, for example, who works on um, uh, trade unions and car factories, has actually shown that in, you know, in, in some key ways, actually unions are quite progressive spaces in terms of race um, and can actually kind of empower 
like black and minority ethnic men who are in these workplaces mm. but you know unions can also be spaces in which white men dominate and in which their concerns kind of dominate over others yeah um and it's it's interesting because obviously for a long time in the early 20th century it was vital for <laughs> the white male working class to actually gain a voice mm-hmm. at all you know against terrible conditions in the workplace but it that that then becomes this very hegemonic mm-hmm beast in industrial politics yeah. that refuses to um, allow women uh, mm-hmm. access to those same supportive yeah. structures and then it's very power. fascinating it's also it's interesting as well because i think you know british people's assumptions of unions trade unions is, is very much that kind of you know shaped by arthur scargill the minor strikes these kind of big industrial unions but you know a lot of you know and and, and the sense that you know maybe unions are kind of working on conditions as much as pay and it's to do with things like um, safety in the workplace which mm. obviously was a really really critical concern of these kind of big industrial um, employees you know the NUM did as much work on the safety and security of miners in the workplace as it did on their pay yeah but obviously at the, because the, these workforces in Britain have been decimated and you know the government particularly the conservative government won you know a series of victories against these these workforces and has you know deindustrialized large parts of Britain. Actually, today the unions that are most often in the the media are USU, the Union mm. and Colleges Union, the NUT, or the the new kind of joint teachers union, which is NASWA and NUT in one. Uh, the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, who have had a couple of quite high profile strikes, where for example they've struck at the BBC and people mm. have refused to cross picket lines. Um, and and you you know kind of actually a lot of unions in Britain today who are most active are unions you know kind of white collar middle class professional yeah jobs which is really important it's important to remember that you know labor you know the work that everybody does is always labor mm. that you know i think sometimes we've talked about this before academics in particular find it really hard to remember that they are laborers yeah and that our work is work and that mm. we need to think about the work we do in terms of our working conditions um but it's also interesting that actually you know what what a union looks like or represents yeah it shifts obviously as you know it's a, it, it's obviously quite an obvious thing to say that as a workforce shifts a union union shift but the NUT has always had women's voices very dominantly in it because the teaching profession is in Britain dominated by women yeah so and I think that's also one of the really interesting things that Silke Neunsinger has I don't know if she's actually published about it but I've spoken to her about it is um so in sweden the anti-apartheid movement was very big and very powerful um and people were boycotting goods from south africa and stuff Mm -hmm. and boycotting investment in south africa but some of the main trade unions including the metal workers union which is i think well it used to be the biggest i'm not Mm -hmm. sure it is anymore but it's very male dominated obviously Mm -hmm. it's uh, the the current Swedish prime minister is actually a former leader of the metal workers union. They didn't like the boycotts. They wanted to trade with South Africa, mm. obviously because this is good economy for its members, right? Mm-hmm. So they went on on research trips to South Africa to see whether you know to investigate the conditions themselves. Mm. And when people talk about the Swedish trade unions and their involvement in the anti-apartheid movement, it's quite often from that perspective that, mm. you know, that these sort of, sort of semi-capitalist structures are interested in, in making money for its members, so mm-hmm. obviously they're going to be less inclined to support boycotts. But what Silke says is that you you have to look at what women do. The mm. women's 
trade unions, the consumer organizations that are run and led by women and they are very anti Mm -hmm. getting involved in South Africa they're sort of supporting their sisters in South Africa by Mm -hmm. not investing in the country and I think it's quite often it's a bit annoying that it seems to be such a um, bipolar picture in a way that Mm -hmm. you have like men pitted against (laughs) women on on the other side but it's and I'm sure that that's not necessarily the case but if I feel like quite often when we look seemingly objectively mm-hmm. at the trade unions they are identified as these male dominated structures mm. yeah and i think that's maybe what we need to change yeah definitely in the history writing of it you know we've talked uh, a bit about how you know labor history with a little l though actually with a big l as well yeah is dominated by men both male historians and male subjects right? mm. there are more male historians working on both labor and labor history the conferences are often quite male spaces. They're often kind of wonkish and slightly, um, kind of the kind of the kind of level of um, train spotterish level of detail. <laughs> yeah, it's a very policy obsessed very field policy in, obsessed. in many ways. Um, yes, and often you know, kind of bleeding of boundaries between um, writing about and experiencing these things, which is a good thing, I think, in history. It's good to kind of write about things that you know and love, but that means that you know historically. The male-dominated labour movement has produced male-dominant histories of labour. Mm. And and that's kind of heightened, I think, in academia as well, because, you know, some men within that kind of political space have historically seen feminism and as being a very middle-class concern and a sort of identity politics, which is never invoked to include class mm. within it, although class is, of course, an identity. And so kind of... I think sometimes women who try to write about women in the trade union movement have either find themselves as sort of a slight sort of an interesting diversion on the side of the real work or have found themselves kind of framed as being, you know, small C conservative or interested in making this story about, you know, introducing women into this story in a way that's not seen as being a very progressive Mm. or a very kind of... um, ideologically a correct correct approach I don't know yeah how to say that and so I think you know the history of women in the workplace and and labor history have often been seen as very separate things yeah and they've, they've not been seen as the same thing and I think this is definitely shifting and and this is definitely changing but it does add to a sort of general idea about what unions are yeah. what it means to be part of a union and what the history of the labor movement is mm. Because Which is interesting, because in both Sweden and, and Britain, a lot of the first wave of uh, women MPs came mm, from yeah. trade union backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. And and in Britain in particular, Labour and the cooperative movement as yeah. well, which of course is a different a different way of um, kind of uh, organising an activism mm. based more around um, kind of community, uh, more money and, th- and within a community. Mm. So... Yeah, no, it is. I mean, yeah, women like Barbara Castle, Ellen Wilkinson, you know, Margaret Bonfield. Yeah, Margaret Bonfield. Um, they all had. They they came up through the labour movement. That's how you got a foothold in politics. So. Mm. Um, and that is, you know, that is now much less common as well. That you know, John Prescott famously had come up through the labour movement, having been a, a set word. Well, I'm trying to think of the way the word, having worked in, on the docks. Yeah, um, and having been a seaman. But, you know, that, again, the, the link between Labour and the unions is, is different now than it used to be. It's not so much that people kind of are, commun- you know, Labour organisers and come up that way. It's just the link is more 
at party conference or in the way that some British unions are. I still think that there's connected. more interlinkages between the Swedish um, trade union movements and, and the Social Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily given these days that the, the trade unions in Sweden support the Social Democratic Party. It used to be sort of taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the Social Democratic Party moves to the centre, yeah. um, some trade unions have moved left, um, which is quite interesting. Quite a lot of the women-dominated unions, mm-hmm. you know, support other parties who That's interesting. are more into the investment in the welfare services. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in Britain, there are some unions which have a formal connection with the Labour Party, um, which some I think some union members only realised uh, during a Labour Party leadership campaign when it, they realised they had a vote in the leadership campaign through oh, yeah. merit of being member of a union. The Fabian Society as well. If you're a member of the Fabian Society, you get a vote in the. Uh, campaign, although they're all weighted in different confusing, complicated ways. Mm. But some unions aren't affiliated, so USU is not affiliated to the Labour Party. So this this sort of funny system in Britain where some unions are formally connected to Labour and some aren't, but obviously still across the political spectrum tend to be closer to Labour than other political parties. Yeah. No, I mean, there is a historic connection that makes sense mm-hmm. yes, of with the representation of workers yes. being, being a core tenant of <laughs> no, both. Well, this is always, it always make, makes me frustrated when right-wing tabloids or even right-wing kind of broadsheets lament the the influence of the unions over the Labour Party as if as if you could ever have a situation where that wasn't the case. What's always struck me as quite interesting is how they always see it as completely undemocratic, whereas... I, I don't understand how it could be undemocratic when people vote and, you know, well... That's because you're a dangerous Swedish radical. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, so I think we've maybe come to the poem. Yes, we have. Um, I've got a brilliant poem this week. So I, I, have, um, I have, like last week, I have a sort of a reference to a historic poem that I would tell people to go and check out, which is actually a song. Ooh. So that um, is... There's a song which many people will know if you've seen the film Pride called Bread and Roses, which is a song that comes out specifically out of the women's labour movement in America and the Bread and Roses strike at the beginning of the 20th century. But it's um, and it's sung, it's set to I'm not going to sing it, but it's set to a really beautiful tune. And there's a moment in Pride where we can link to a video where um, a woman sings this song and it becomes this kind of communal song. But the reason I like Bread and Roses, um, and I think the reason Bread and Roses resonates with a lot of people, is that um, it it says the people here are singing Bread and Roses. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. And it's the idea that strikes and labour action is not it's not just about material conditions or about keeping body and soul together. It's not about the minimum. Mm. It's about other things. You know, it's this sense that like, nothing is too good for the working class. It's not about just bread. It's about roses too. Yeah. It's about having access to to culture and free time and a family life, as well as having this kind of um, the very minimum of bread for mm. you to survive. So that's you know a nice historical moment. And then the actual poem is a Marge Piercy poem. We've had Marge Piercy on this uh, podcast before. Almost as often her. as Barbara Castle. <laughs> I feel like, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm a broken record. I have three or four references and I just <laughs> wheel them all out. But this is a really fantastic poem called The Low Road, um, which I which really resonates with me and I think um, it, through this process of, of UC being on strike. So it starts off saying, what can they do to you, whatever they want? Uh, They can set you up, they can bust you, break your fingers, burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, but they roll right over you. And then she goes on to say, 
But two people fighting back to back can cut through a mob. A snake dancing fire can break a cordon. Termites can bring down a mansion. Two people can keep each other sane. Three people are a delegation. With four, you can play games and start a collective. With six, you can rent a whole house, have pie for dinner with no seconds and make your own music. A hundred fill a hole. A thousand have solidarity in their own newsletter. Ten thousand have community in their own papers. So it's this point about, you know, the importance of collective action, about what going from being an individual to being a group of people. Scaling up. Yes. And the final verse, it says, it goes one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they say no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean. And each day you mean one more. Mm. So the idea of, yeah, unions coming from a small space and getting bigger and bigger, which yeah. I think is a really empowering idea. Yes, particularly these days when I think we have to find ways of getting mm-hmm. unionship to people who feel very disassociated from their actual workplaces and yes. potential colleagues. Absolutely. And I think also what this poem does, I don't normally talk about the poem in this much detail, but the other thing that this does is talk about it. it again, it's bread and roses. You know, she says two people can keep each other sane, give support, conviction, love, massage, hope and sex. It's not just about the collective as being a way of getting better conditions. It's also about you know, the collective as a kind of joyous and supportive experience as well. Yeah. Now we'll put we'll try to put as much of that as we can on the <laughs> on our famous footnotes. Um our recommendations today are actually um on request. Yes. <laughs> by this is request really exciting. from a listener uh, called JB who wrote um I'm students at Charlotte's Uni and love reading and looking into new approaches and would love your recommendations for books which have really stimulated you intellectually and saw topics in new lights, especially feminist approaches. So we're going to be recommending stuff by the same author, yes. actually. This is how similar we have become or are yes. originally. We both had exactly the same response to this yeah. to this request, which was that it would have to be something by C- Cynthia Enlow. Yeah. Um, so, um, because I think, you know, both, both of us work on, both of our work includes work on foreign policy and international relations. And women in international spaces. Yes. And international relations and foreign policy, you know, if you thought labour history was dominated by men, then wait till you go to an international relations conference. Um, they, it's very dominated by men. The theory has been incredibly reluctant to introduce ideas about gender or any kind of identity politics in any in any sense i'm kind of now moving into the field of diplomatic history which i feel is shifting slightly because there's this idea of new diplomatic history but even so that it just you know three years ago the dominant absolute majority of anything being published in that field is about male actors doing other things and discussing with other men diplomatic history is where i started my academic career my my the very sort of that's where I came from as a master's student and you know my PhD and it's white men doing things in rooms Mm. like that's when I started my PhD my PhD was a PhD about white men doing things in rooms rooms covered in portraits of white men looking down with a map on the table that's you know white men standing around a map on the table so Cynthia Enlow is a really really important corrective to that because she has spent her entire career interrogating the ways in which male policy actors are seen as the objective norm Mm. and 
introducing thinking about critically about what happens when you introduce gender and race into these narratives so um emma what book did you want to represent i um well my favorite the first thing i ever wrote by cynthia Enloe was bananas beaches and bases mm-hmm. making feminist sense of international politics and i think the fact that it's called bananas beaches and bases and it has a re- at least the edition i Red had a photo of Carmen Miranda on the mm-hmm. cover yes. with the, all the bananas. Yeah, um, it's incredibly thought provoking. Mm-hmm. I think one thing. So Cynthia Enloe is a political scientist. Mm-hmm. She's not a historian, but she deals with the past very well. And she, her core tenant is basically asking, "Where are the women?" Mm-hmm. And she's saying that you can't write international history without knowing where the women are. Yeah. Because the women are there, they're doing things. They're washing the pesticides of the bananas, mm-hmm. or they're typing up um, the the directives from various international conferences, or you know they're leading things yeah. in their own rights. And it's it's a very very thought provoking book about just how many women there are if you start looking for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and she's also, one of the things I really like about Cynthia Enloe is that she writes incredibly directly. She's, she does. I mean, that's part of her ethos, I suppose, is that it, it, you can't write passively. You can't say um, someone decided to do something. You have to name them. You have to yes. be very clear about who does what to whom and what the consequences of that is. Yes. And I think that's very inspirational. Someone who tries to write a history that people can actually read and and access is a very good way absolutely and like that itself is a feminist act it is a feminist act to write this stuff in a way that people can actually read it yeah uh, mine is her is a recent book um or recent 2004 um book called the curious feminist searching for women in the new age of empire um which is a collection of essays and it was recommended to me um by kate beaumont who is a lecturer at, um lsbu who said that you know, the invocation of curiosity at the beginning of this book and the importance of being a curious feminist, mm. um, she said, was you know very inspiring to her as being the curiosity and and not becoming kind of performatively cynical or uncurious is really important. That as academics we are encouraged sometimes to to dim our sense of curiosity because or I dim our sense of being surprised mm. or or kind of reduce any sense that we might have been um shocked by something we found out because we're supposed to pretend that we knew this stuff already yeah, that, yeah. that of course we understand how things are we can't be shocked because we already were fully aware of it exactly and cynthia Enloe says you know no you have to be curious you have to be surprised and she says you know whenever we don't pursue questions we miss the patriarchy it glides right by us like an oil tanker on a foggy day <laughs> um and i also when i've been reading this i've been really reminded of um the work of marilyn young who was an academic um, in the field of international relations as well, who who died, I think, a year ago now. But she also, in her work, you know, she worked on, on Vietnam. She was an anti-Vietnam, anti-Vietnam War activist who then wrote extensively on IR and Vietnam, but then sort of New American Empire. Mm. She was writing a lot about America and Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think she also, you know, brought the sense of you have to have this curiosity, you have to ask questions and keep asking questions and that that's a feminist act in, in what you're doing. So, yes. So on that note, yeah, we can probably round up for this week. Yes. Um, you know, follow us on Twitter at TNKpod. Uh, come to our website, uh, tomorrowneverknowspod.com 
dot com um, sign so, up for our newsletter yes which is where you get our footnotes which is very important because you get all the factual corrections but also <laughs> uh, links to all the things that we've been talking about and um, we'll see you soon yeah